Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Um, struggled with. I, I grew up in an Orthodox community. My father, Avi Weiss, uh, was here last year. You may have studied with him a little bit. Um, and one of the things uh, that always troubled me growing up was some things, certain acts that, the, that God undertakes in the Bible always seemed to, be, seemed to me to be unethical. Right? Uh, God often appears in, in the Torah as, as uh, as a, a, a character full of wrath who sometimes uh, has, has, has an anger management problem, to, to put it nicely. And, and you know, Moses and Abraham are always there to, to um, try to uh, uh, calm God down. And I always, I always struggled. You know, the idea that, that, that the Israelites were commanded to um, kill you know, all of the women, all the men, women, and children of the seven nations, uh, uh, the native population in, in the land of Canaan, or the, the whole nation of Amalek. So these things always really disturbed me. And, and, and so both in terms of reading the biblical text, and I struggled with this, and I struggled with whether I was allowed to struggle. This was the other thing. I went to a pretty ultra-Orthodox place, and I was told that you're not allowed to ever critique God or challenge God. Um, and I would then respond, but wait a second, if you look at the Bible, you know, Moshe and, and Abraham and Avram, I don't know if I should say the names in Hebrew or, or, or in English, um, and I've brought this identity struggle that I have to, to my child, who's also Moshe and Moses, depending <laughs> upon the minute. So I'm going to just do both. Because when I was in rabbinical school, it was always Moshe, and then I came into the academy, came Moses. But we know of characters in the Bible that have that have bravely and courageously stood up for morality, even, even in the face of, of God. And not just in terms of reading problematic texts about God in the Torah, but in our own lives. I mean, we often you know, experience disappointment and struggle and pain. And, and the, the question I have, and I had for many years, is whether it is uh, religiously legitimate, Jewishly legitimate, to protest against God, to criticize God. And in school, I went to an ultra-Orthodox day school, and I was told that, that we're not allowed to question God. Who are we? Who are we? We're finite. We're finite people. God is infinite. God knows everything. There must be a reason that we're not aware of. Who are we to ever raise a voice against God? And I struggled, and I struggled, and I came to graduate school, and I, I, um, I thought I was going to, you know, 
leave my Orthodox uh, training behind and I was going to study modern Jewish theology. I was going to study the writings of the early reform movement and maybe Abraham Geiger. And I thought I would study you know, liberal theologians. And I took a course with Michael Fishbane, who was here, I think, a few weeks ago. Uh, we took a class in Midrash and I fell in love with, with rabbinic thought, with Midrash. Um, and he became my advisor. And I spent years studying Midrash, and I realized that the rabbis themselves really struggled with God. And one of the ways in which they expressed that struggle with God is by re rewriting the biblical story, right? So we have challenges against God in the biblical text itself, but then the rabbis add 100, 150 more challenges to God, but they don't carry the responsibility of the critique. They place the critique into the mouth of biblical characters when they're rewriting the biblical narrative. So I'll just give you like one example. So we all know that Moshe slash Moses was denied entry into the land of Israel. In the biblical text, Moshe never protests against God's decisions. Moshe just supplicates and prays and asks God to enter into the land. But if you read rabbinic literature, Moshe goes after God, you know, and really, really is highly critical um, of him. And um, so that basically was what my book was about. It was about reading these rabbinic texts where the rabbis express their frustration, ambivalence, worry um, with God by using the mouths of biblical characters. So I call it protest ventriloquism. That was the term that I used. And, um, but what, what's less well known is that, and what I've discovered in my, in my research, is that in the early rabbinic period, and, and when scholars in, in the universities and academies use the term rabbinic period, they mean from around the year 70 to the Islamic conquest. So from the year 70 of the Common Era to around 637 of the Common Era until, right? The rabbinic period is, is the, rabbi, uh, the rabbis who wrote the Talmud, the Midrash, Mishnah, Tosefta. This is a foundational, the foundational text of, of Judaism. What I've recognized in my, in my scholarship is that the idea that you're not allowed to protest God actually does not, the idea that you're not allowed to protest God does not appear anywhere in uh, the Hebrew Bible. Can anyone here think of any text in the Hebrew Bible that says you're not allowed to protest against God, you can't challenge God, you can't criticize against God? You won't find it. You won't find it. Maybe a statement in Isaiah chapter 45, woe to the one who challenges his maker. But, but even there, it's not such a clear Prohibition, it's kind of a faint, you know, kind of, it's not that clear. Um, there really is no prohibition. There's a prohibition against cursing God. We know that. We know there's a prohibition against using God's name in vain. But it's interesting. There really is no prohibition. And we have, as I mentioned before, if you read Psalms, you know, every three Psalms, you have a Psalm of lament, right? The most famous Psalm in Psalm 22 that became popular in in the Christian world, right? Eli, Eli, lama zavtani. My Lord, my Lord, why have you um, abandoned me? Um, and of course, it becomes very famous 
this motif of protest in which, which book of the Bible? Which oh, book? Job. In Job, yeah. I mean, whew, God really gets it in Job. So who made the decision that Job should be part of the canon? That must not have been a, such a simple um, decision. Uh, it's interesting, right? Book of Job is really interesting. So God makes a bet. The first chapter, God makes a bet with the Satan, with Satan. Will Job blaspheme God in the face of such hardship? So let me ask you this. Does, who wins the bet? How many people here know, know the story of Job? Yeah? A little bit? So who wins the bet? Yeah. So you think that, that Job never curses God? Right, so that's the interesting thing. It's not so clear who wins, who wins the bet. Uh, because initially Job is pretty patient, the first two chapters. But beginning with chapter 3, Job really goes after, goes after God, especially in chapter 9 and chapter 13. Go home, look over chapter 9, chapter 13, chapter 23. It gets pretty, pretty intense. And yet, when you look at the end of Job, the last chapter, chapter 42, God says that, he, that Job spoke correctly. His friends didn't. His friends who claimed that Job shouldn't be speaking in such a fashion. God says Job speaks correctly. So you have a model in the Bible where protesting God seems to be a legitimate, um, uh, legitimate expression of a religious response. It's not the only expression, right? I mean, certainly Abraham and... You know, when Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham doesn't protest. I mean, it's one of the things that moderns uh, struggle with. You know, why doesn't, uh, why didn't Abraham protest, right? He protests when God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter, you know, chapter 19 of Genesis. But chapter 22, when it's about his own son, he doesn't say a word. So obviously there are different religious responses, but the Bible doesn't seem to foreclose the option of protest. Did you have oh, a question, uh, so Rupert? Uh, actually, my interpretation of that is that um, he misinterpreted the result of Sodom and Gomorrah, in that he argued with God, and God was right uh, to some degree, and so he learned, oh, don't argue with God. So he mm. misinterpreted the conclusion. Oh, I see. That's interesting. That's a new one. I haven't heard of that one. I heard a, a great, great response to the, to the binding of Isaac. You know, why did a a Abraham protest? And the answer is that Abraham was playing a game of chicken with God. That, in fact, Abraham was testing God to see whether God would actually follow through with such an immoral command. And that Abraham was never actually going to do it. You know, he had the knife and he was waiting for God to say something. That, I think, is <laughs> a little bit of a modern, uh, a modern liberal uh, uh, apologetic, which, which is good, which I'm all, I'm all in favor of, as, as long as we're aware of the fact that we are you know, rereading re a text. The first time we have in Judaism this idea that one is prohibited from challenging God, and again, this is, I'm not arguing this is the only rabbinic position. I just said that there is a whole school of thought in classical Judaism that actually celebrates this idea. But there are some texts we have in the early rabbinic period, um, in the third, third century rabbinic texts, that prohibit one from, from criticizing God. And, and I want to look at these texts now inside and, and then ask, you know, where, 
what is motivating, what is the theory behind prohibiting, prohibiting protest? Um, so if you look at the first source, the first source comes from um, the Sifrei. The Sifrei is the earliest um, rabbinic commentary that we have on the book of Deuteronomy. And it was probably produced in the land of Israel in the third century. And uh, the Sifrei comes from the word Sefer, of course, book. The Sifrei is considered a midrash. It is, it is one of the earliest midrashim, as I just mentioned, on the Torah. And here it cites a quote from Deuteronomy. The verse in Deuteronomy says that the rock, God, God's work is perfect, right? Sort tamim pa'alo, b'chol derachav mishpat. In all of God's ways, God is just. It's one of the statements in the Bible, and there are many of them, that God is perfectly just in meeting out his judgments. But the Sifrei takes it one step further and says that, that this concept that God always meets out perfect justice also communicates a prohibition on our end. So if you read the text, it says, God's actions in regard to all creatures of the world are perfect. There can be no complaint whatsoever about his work. And in the, in the Hebrew, for those who read Hebrew, ein leharher achar ma'asav. You're not allowed to literally think. Hirher means to think, but it also means to think prohibitively, right? It is prohibited to think negative thoughts, to be critical of God's actions. And then what's interesting is that the Midrash then gives a list of things that we shouldn't say, you know? which also makes you wonder whether the, the rabbis who wrote this midrash themselves were struggling, right? Don't make the following critiques of God, right? When you tell your children, okay, I don't want you to read the following five books that are in the upper right-hand corner of the bookshelf. Now you know what's going to happen in the middle of the night because it happened to me. I was told not to read my aunt's books. My aunt is a great writer, Tova Reich. I don't know if you've heard of her. But anyway... I was told I couldn't read her first book, Mara. Anyway, so I always wonder like, whether they realize, you know, the authors of the Midrash, that they're actually preserving you know, and kind of promulgating the actual critiques that they claim one should not present. But the text says that no one could ask God the following. Why should the people of the Tower of Bavel have been scattered from one end of the earth to the other? Why should the people have Sodom have been swept away by fire and brimstone? Right? Apparently, according to this Midrash, Abraham may have violated this prohibition, right? because Abraham himself challenges God. And I'll just skip to the last sentence. For all of God's ways is justice. He sits in judgment on everyone and dispenses to each what is appropriate for him. This seems so inimical to Excellent. What's your name? Uh, Paul. Paul asks a great question. This text seems to be inimical to, to the real thrust of the, of the biblical narratives, right. right? I mean, it seems to really castigate some question over Abraham, Abraham's challenge of God over Sodom and, and, and Gomorrah. Isn't this what Judaism is about, right? I mean, the, certainly even the name Israel itself comes from the fact that Jacob 
Sarita im Elohim, that, God, that Jacob struggled with God. That's where our name comes from. So I think, um, again, remind me your name again? Paul. Paul, I think, really asks a great question. You know, what, what is happening in the, in, the, in the second, third century of the common era that we begin to have these Midrashic texts that proclaim that it is prohibited to challenge God? How do we explain this new moment in the history of Jewish theology where... So I, excellent. I think it has somewhat to do with the threat from Christianity. What's the threat? So, and, and this argument is not mine. It's an argument that I read in, in, a, in a very, very interesting book by Arthur Marmerstein. Arthur Marmerstein was an, was a, was an Orthodox scholar from England. And my thoughts are, are, are with, the, with the English community and, the, and what happened yesterday. Um, Arthur Marmerstein has wrote an excellent uh, book um, called Anthropomorphism in Judaism, and he has another book called um, Studies in Jewish Theology, and he makes the following argument, which I've discussed in, in my book, um, and I support, um, which is that there were Christians, okay, who followed Jesus Christ and who saw the God of the Old Testament as an immoral God, right? and I'm not talking about the mainstream you know, what we would call now the proto-Orthodox uh, Christians, you know, people like Origen and, and Tertullian and Augustine. I'm speaking here about um, people like Marcion, right? There was a, a Christian named Marcion who believed that the, the God of the Old Testament was an immoral, evil God, and that uh, the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is the moral God coming to correct the Old Testament. And, and not just Marcion, uh, but also there were a number of Gnostics, Christian Gnostics, who also wrote about the immorality of, of, the, of the Old Testament God. As a matter of fact, Marcion had a book called The Antithesis, where on one side of, of, of a book he put statements of the Old Testament next to statements of the New Testament to show that the Old Testament God is immoral. And this was a debate within the Christian community. So you have the Marcion, Marcionites and various groups of Gnostics um, criticizing the morality of the Old Testament God. And then you have the, what we would call the emerging Orthodox Christian, Christian community that was defending the morality of God against the Gnostic critique. And my argument is that these polemics and these disputes and arguments um, kind of affected the rabbis as well. I mean, we know that, that Christians, writers, and thinkers in the second and third century had contacts with the rabbis, people like Origen, Origen uh, who, who lived in Caesarea, people like um, Justin Martyr, people, uh, Christian, early Christian, these are Orthodox Christian thinkers, um, and most famously, Eusebius, Eusebius as well, who wrote, who wrote, the, who wrote the history of, the, uh, of, of the, ecclesi the ecclesiastical history. So I think that the rabbis were also affected by these critiques. And one response is to claim that agreeing with the Orthodox Christian view that the Old Testament God is morally perfect and nobody can raise, uh, 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 no one could ever raise a question against God. And the chief spokesman in the rabbinic period for this view, can anyone guess, the, perhaps the greatest rabbi who was again and again and again always said it is prohibited, one is prohibited from protesting against God. Name me some great rabbis in the rabbinic period. 
I'll give you a hint. He was martyred by the Romans, according to legend, in the second century. Akiva, exactly. And if you turn to the second text, here, the second text has it for you, where it says, look at the last line of the second text, and this text comes from the Mechilta. The Mechilta is the earliest rabbinic commentary on the book of Exodus. Okay? This actually may have been the, earl the earliest, right? because there is no early rabbinic commentary on Genesis. No one knows why. What happened to the early Midrash on Genesis? We don't have one. At least not one that we know of. And if anybody here has it, you can make a lot of money. Okay? So you'll let me know after class. I'll, we'll cut a deal and we'll, we'll publish it together and make a lot of money. Um, the, Akiva says the following. One should not challenge the words of him who spoke and the world came into being. For every word of God is in accordance with truth and every decision in accordance with justice. Right? So even Akiva, who was, who, was, who, was, who, 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 who was killed, you know, who was martyred, who was, who, his, his flesh, his skin was, was, was put to, to the flames. At that moment, what does he do? Does he challenge God? No. He calls out, now I have fulfilled my lifelong desire of dying al-Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name. Okay? But what is driving the prohibition? What is the, what is the theoretical justification for this uh, uh, opposition to protest? That God is perfect, right? This is, this is the basis of the, of the stringent view. That God is perfect. And therefore, if we criticize God, we're speaking falsehood about God because we're implying somehow that God might have been mistaken. There's another view within rabbinic literature that also I would call the, 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 uh, the prohibitive, the, the stringent view, that argues that one is not allowed to criticize God, not because God is perfect, but because it's a lack of respect. Okay? The problem is not a metaphysical one, right? that God is perfect. It's a relational one. Just as one would be prohibited from openly criticizing a, a king, a human king, so too it would be prohibited from criticizing the king of kings. So it's not a problem of God is perfect. It's that we are much lower down on the hierarchical chain of being. And we have to express due respect to the creator of the world. And this concept appears in a Talmudic text in source number three. And here I'm referring to the Babylonian Talmud. We all know that there are two Talmuds out there running around one from the land of Israel, one from Babylonia. The Babylonian Talmud became the more influential and accepted Talmud, although the, since the advent of Zionism, the Jerusalem Talmud has been making somewhat of a, of a comeback. In the Babylonian Talmud, a statement of one of the rabbis there that Job actually sinned. This is very, very interesting. There is a point of view within ancient Judaism that Job sinned by criticizing God. What was the sin? He challenged God. What's wrong with challenging God? Well, let's look what the text said. It says, Rava said, dust should be put in the mouth of Job. This text, for those who are listening on the podcast, is from Bava Batra, 16a. Dust should be put in the mouth of Job. Right? In, in the Aramaic, it's Afra Lepumya de Eov. I just like how that sounds. <laughs> I think also one of the ultra-Orthodox rabbis, I think one of the, I think the Nova Minsker, at one of the uh, Gouda dinners, Rup Shmuley, I think he, he started bashing my father 
and he cited this, this, this Talmudic text. Afra lapumya davi vice. So I, I thought that was funny when he did that, you know. Not bad. My father is in the company of Eov, you know. It's pretty good. Anyway, dust should be put in the mouth of Job because Job makes himself a chavruta to God, a colleague, a friend. The Hebrew is chavruta klape shemaya. Is, is Job a, a, like, a, like a study partner, a chavruta? He's a friend? So the problem is not that Eov's critiques were wrong. It was, the, it was that he speaks to God in such a casual manner, right? Respect for the office. Exactly. Right? But in the end, Job doesn't necessarily repent. He understands and then covers his mouth. At the end of the book of Job, when God comes and were you here when everything was created? Or, you know, and then he says, now I understand. So doesn't that release him from sinning? Yeah, that that I like a chew Well, I think I think I thought you were raising a good point. Um, tell me if you're in chapter thirty-eight. I wanted to bracket this, but you are right. In chapter thirty-eight, God does say, "Who are you to speak without knowledge?" Right. You know, which which actually does seem to imply perhaps that that Job should should not have um, spoken out against God. And right, then maybe therefore, and then what you're saying is that Job does respond. And accepts and accepts that 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 that, that critique of him. Yes, but the, what's strange is that the ending of chapter forty-two is different than the ending of chapter thirty-eight. The ending in chapter thirty-eight, God says, "You're wrong, Job. You spoke without knowledge." In chapter forty-two, God says, "You spoke correctly." So this has always been uh, troubling to scholars of the Bible, and I think the most compelling case was put together by some Bible scholars that, in fact, Job, the book of Job, originally was two different books. There was the prose Job, which is called the patient Job, which is chapters 1, 2, and 42, where horrible things happen to Job, the story, and Job never argues, and then God says Job was right, right? And then the middle part, the poetic part, was called Job the impatient. Um, and Job, at the end of that book, chapter 38, is um, castigated by God, and then somehow then brought the two, two Job's together. Because there does seem to be two different uh, endings to the, um, to the book. Um, the article that I wrote, I spent a lot of time on, on the character of Job, both in the rabbinic literature and in early Christian texts. So you can either pick up the book, or you can get it directly from this article that is actually online um, that I wrote, and that's called The Sin of Protesting God in early rabbinic and patristic literature, patristic being early, the early church fathers, the paters, the fathers, the avotah knisiah. Um, so the problem here, again, is, oh, and then the second line of this Babylonian Talmudic text, where Rava, where Rava says that dust shall be put into the mouth of, of Job. Why? Is there a slave who rebukes his master? Right? We have to be robot, robots, right? We have to do what we're told. But if you're made in the image of God, yeah. how can you be a slave? Let us make man in the image of God, you know, the first part of Genesis. How do you understand that? The question is, but we're supposed to be in the image of God. Doesn't that give us agency? Is that, that, that what you're saying? That, that the fact that we're made in the image of God gives us a certain sense of closeness or a certain sense of, of um, we, we, we can, we're not master-slave, Right, that we're somehow more like a child Maybe. to father, 
And I think you're raising a great point, which is that it all depends upon really what metaphor you use to describe the human divine relationship. So if you use the metaphor, if you view ourselves as a slave to the master, then this position makes sense. But let's say, let's say you take the metaphor that's often used in the Bible of a, of a husband and a wife. Well, then maybe it gets a little bit more com- complex, right? Are you living in a patriarchal society? Are you, are you living in an egalitarian society? Or let's say parent-child. Is a child allowed to nag a parent? So there the hierarchy is not as rigid as master-slave. So I think that, that's a really good, good point. Um, so now I know I have only 20 minutes left. Uh, I want to skip rabbinic ambivalence, and I want to turn to the other perspective, which is probably the more exciting perspective. Every time I, I teach a class on this, um, and whenever my father is, is present in one of my lectures, he's always pushing me to turn to all the radical stuff in the beginning. You know, He's like, Dove, you spent too much time on the more traditional points of view. And I, my response is that you have to understand you can only understand the courageous voices if you understand you know, what they're up against, right? You understand how courageous Reb Shmuley is by reading all of the craziness, these crazy voices within, within the, the extreme right of the religious community. Then you understand how brave, brave, brave Shmuley is. Okay. Um, if you turn to the, to the end of the sources, I want to talk a little bit about the opposite point of view that celebrates that really encourages um, challenging God, that sees challenging God as, as not, not a prohibition, not even a permissible act, but a laudatory one. And here, I would argue, the move to again celebrate confrontation with God, in a certain sense, brings us back to the biblical model, is a, a voices emerge more in later rabbinic literature. My argument in my book is that in the second, third, fourth century, very prohibitive against this religious expression. In the fifth, sixth, seventh century, a radical transition where you begin to have voices of, of not just permission, but even celebration of protest. And what happens then, what I argue in the book, is that that then fuels a response from the, from the stringent point of view that also becomes more extreme. So what you have in late rabbinic literature is not only an emerging permissive voice, but also a re- radical reaction from the stringent voice that becomes even more extreme. So for example, and here also I point to the article in my book where, where I show that there are statements in late rabbinic literature that why was the, why was the temple destroyed? Because we criticized God. You know, why, why did the spies, why did the... The, the Israelites need to spend 40 years in the desert because they criticize God. So, you know, criticizing God becomes not just a prohibitive act, but an act that is accompanied with punishment, right? So if you, if you criticize God, you'll become lame. If you cr- criticize God, you'll be excommunicated. These, these texts do not appear in early rabbinic literature, only in late rabbinic literature. And my argument is that it's a response to the permissive point of view that emerges in late rabbinic literature. In late rabbinic literature, um, and here I want to note the, the uh, midrash um, that I spent many years um, working on. It's a midrash called Tanhuma. Tanhuma. Uh, it, it, it's the first complete midrashic commentary on the Torah. Probably the, 
most of the material of the Tanhuma was produced in the 6th and the 7th century, right before the Islamic conquest, according to a great scholar and a great human being by the name of Mark Bregman. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He's, a, he's a, an amazing man um, who's a professor at the University of North Carolina, um, and he is the, he's the Tanhuma man. Um, so I really draw and, and, and build upon his work. Um, and the Tanhuma, what I noticed was that the Tanhuma consistently re rewrote the biblical narrative but placed protests against God into the mouths of biblical characters. So when you have an early rabbinic text, let's say Moshe not challenging God over being denied entry into the land of Israel, Tanhuma text will... Uh, rewrited as Moshe being very, very critical of God. And sometimes the late Midrashic texts of Tanhuma will take the earlier Midrash material and um, just rewrite it, but rewrite it in a way that is a lot more confrontational. They'll change the words around. So, for example, if early Midrash, we'll have a Midrash where Leah prays that God do X, the biblical character Leah prays that God does X, Y, and Z, the Tanhuma will, will change the word mivakeshet, request, to mitra emet, or mitra seset, which means to protest. Right? So, so, so my book really shows the, and makes certain historical arguments as to why it is that the Tanhuma really um, represents the apex of this tradition of confrontation, which I think ends in the 7th century. It ends and it only reemerges. I think, in, in, in Hasidic texts, right, in, in the writings of, or in the oral traditions and legends of, of the Katska Rebbe and of Levi, Levi Yitzchak of Barditchev, and then, of course, reaches to Elie Wiesel and David Blumenthal and, 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 and you know, the post-Holocaust post uh, uh, the, theologians. Where does Great question. Um, Paul, Paul wants to, well, where does where Maimonides fit into all this? Well, Maimonides would say that, that, that challenging God is an act of, of, of vanity. I mean, it's an absurd act because God is not a character. So you don't really have, and God is perfect. Maimonides has a very philosophical definition of God. Maimonides, the God of Maimonides is really the God of, of Aristotle, um, filtered through Arabic uh, translations and commentaries, right? So, so I mean, Maimonides writes in Arabic, and people don't realize this. Yeah, wow. I mean, Maimonides, all of his writings, except for his legal works, were in Arabic. Um, so I remember once being in a class where, where my, in an Orthodox yeshiva, and, and the rabbi's trying to make a, a linguistic point about what Maimonides says in his commentary to the Mishnah, and afterwards, you know, I had to tell him very politely and, and deferentially that, that you can't do that because, you know, the original is Arabic, you know, unless you speak Arabic. Um, and when I actually studied Maimonides at the University of Chicago Divinity School, um, I had to ask my friend Shada from the United Arab Emeritus to help me read the Rambam. I couldn't read the Rambam without my Arabic colleagues. And, and they needed me to read Rambam too because the letters are in Hebrew. But the words are Arabic. You know, and then I thought, well, maybe this will bring Middle East peace. <laughs> Just you know, throw at representatives of the Palestinians and Israelis, you know, maybe show them, show them the Mornavuchim in the original Judeo-Arabic and, and let, them, let them go after it. So Maimonides has a conception of God that's perfect and, and, and 
I mean, Maimonides even, even really struggles with prayer because God, Maimonides doesn't really have a God who, who changes or a God who hears or a God who is a character in any sense. A God is much more of a, of a concept, you know, than a, than a, than a person, right? Like God, the Maimonidean God, God really has no interactions with, right. with us, right? God is really radically transcendent. I mean, the closest we can get to, to God is in, my, in the Maimonidean uh, Aristotelian system is, is, is an intermediary, uh, which Maimonides calls the, the agent intellect. It's, uh, it's one of the, the tenth of the, the ten um, entities, spiritual entities, uh, in, in, the, in the Aristotelian metaphysical framework. I know those are big words there. But, yeah, the point is that, 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 that and I think, Paul, you really raised a great point, is that once new conceptions of God emerge in the medieval period, whether they be philosophical or Kabbalistic, God loses personhood. God either becomes a philosophical concept in the Maimonidean system, or in the Kabbalistic system, God is no longer a person. God is ten different powers, right? The Sifi wrote. Um, I know Daniel Matt was here, right? So it's a whole. There's also there's a, a defrag. God is frag. There's a fragmentation of the divine personality, right? In both medieval systems, and the idea of God as a personality reemerges, I think, in in Hasidic text. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So, in the time we have left, I just want to present what I think is the late rabbinic view that really sees challenging God as, as, as a, a something that should be valorized. Um, of course, you know, they can look to, at the biblical text and say, look, there's a, we, have, we have biblical stories of, of heroes who, who challenge God. Um, but I want to just point, turn to the conceptual. What would, what, what would be the response of, of the permissive view to the stringent view? And let's turn to the, the latter critique first, which is, isn't it disrespectful? What would the permissive view respond to that Babylonian Talmudic text, right, that dust should be put into Job's mouth? Are you, are you God's colleague? You can speak in such a fashion. And I think Paul may have hit on the answer before, which is, well, it really depends upon how you see the relationship between God and man, God and woman, God and Israel. And that is exactly what happens in late rabbinic literature. The argument goes is that, in fact, God is conceived as a lover with Israel, either as friend of Israel, siblings. It's very, these, these metaphors are actually quite radical. These are, these are even metaphors you'll, you'll, you'll hardly find in the Bible. The rabbis adopt metaphors where not, not only God and, and humanity are placed on a, on a horizontal line, right? So, so God in the Bible is typically, you know, God is master, God is king, God is, you know, the, the metaphor of, of husband, which in a patriarchal system obviously is a higher up on the hierarchy. Uh, but what Moshe Halbertal has, has shown in a, in a couple of his articles a great scholar from Hebrew University, that in rabbinic literature, very often the rabbis use, use 
metaphors of God and Israel where God and Israel are actually on the same level, right? So either as siblings or friends or as lovers, but in rabbinic literature, sometimes Israel plays the masculine husband and God plays the feminine. So you have this uh, text that, the, that God, God conceded to every decree of Moses. There's this concept in rabbinic literature called the righteous decree, and God concedes to whatever the righteous wants. Sadiq Ozer, this is an article, actually, it's coming out in a, in a book. In a, there's a book coming out in honor of my father in the next few months, and this article is, is, uh, is in the book. It's actually my favorite thing I've ever written, is this article. And it really speaks to, to my feelings about my father. But anyway, I raise that because in this one text, Israel's compared to the husband. You know, Moshe is compared to the husband. And God, God as, a, as a wife in a patriarchal s- system, has to always concede to the demands of the husband. It's very interesting. It translates the, the word in Deuteronomy, Ish Elohim. Moses is described as the man of God. The rabbis read not man of God, but husband of God. Ish can sometimes also mean the husband. And then, of course, and then in, in Kabbalistic literature, um, Moshe is not only the, the metaphorical husband of God who can make demands on God, but in the Kabbalistic system, Moshe actually marries the feminine aspect of God, the Shekhinah. Moshe becomes Ishelohim, the actual husband of the Shekhinah, after he fulfills the human requirement of having children. I am getting too way off, off field. This is the problem with Torah. Problem with Torah is you just start and you want to go from A to B and you get so sidetracked because there's so many amazing things that I want to talk about. Um, the response, I think, is that, is that no, don't, don't view Job as a slave who rebukes his master. View Job as a, as a spouse, as a family member, as a friend. And when you're a friend, the height of friendship you know it's a friend when it's a deep friendship when you can be honest and critical with a friend. There's this beautiful phrase in, in the Midrash in Genesis Rabbah. Kol ahava she'ein imoto eno ahava. Any love that is not accompanied with rebuke, with criticism, is not true love. And that and you can spend a day, a day just on that. You know, I mean, you can read that in so many ways. But I read that is that, you know, if you're in a loving relationship, if you can't have, if you are not allowed to criticize the other, then it's not such a great loving relationship. You have to be real. You have to be honest. What kind of a relationship? We, we're not robots, right? To be in a relationship with a loved one is to be in a relationship where you're allowed to be honest, to, be lo- to, to lovingly critique for the sake of love and out of love, and that the belief that ultimately love will hold the relationship, right? That you're not afraid to be critical because they're not going anywhere. It's, it's actually a very, very high level. And this is not just a Jewish concept. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, there is a connection um, between paresia, the idea of open criticism, it's a Greek word, parousia, and philia, in love. And, and this comes up a lot in the writings of, of uh, David Constant, who's a professor of, uh, at Brown in classics. He wrote a book on friendship. 
this idea of rebuke and friendship. And as a matter of fact, in the ancient world, the, 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 the Roman emperor actually hired someone it's like a chief of staff, to be his man of parousia. This, the job of this person was to be critical of the emperor, but for the sake of the emperor. In other words, you want someone close to you who is going to point you in the right direction. Parousia and philia. Ahava and tochacha. As a matter of fact, of course, we have the, the, the verse in the Torah when it comes to the, an interhuman relationship of tochacha. There's a mitzvah. There's a virtue. Rebuke is a virtue in the Jewish tradition. Hocheach tochiach et amitecha. Right? Verse from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. And why do I know that by heart? 1917, because I'm a big Yankee fan. And when the Yankees were playing the Red Sox in 2003, I was at game seven, and everybody was screaming 1917 because the Red Sox hadn't won since 1917. And my dad said to me that it's not nice, to, not nice, and that I should um, look up Leviticus 19.17. And I looked it up, and there it said, right? Um, because, but what does it say, the verse after that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Did you have a... Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I guess the point is, is that it depends what type of critique, right? Is it, is it, is it a critique coming from a friend or, or not? And the rabbis them t- themselves at times are, um, s- are self-reflexive on this question. Um, and they, they make all sorts of really interesting distinctions between legitimate critique and Ill- They don't speak about it that um, openly, usually. I mean, usually you get a sense that the rabbis, the, the rabbis in, in the late rabbinic period are very comfortable and very happy with critique because they're producing all of these critiques by heroes. And sometimes God even asks. The rabbis have God asking Jewish leaders to critique God, right? So when Moses is about ready to die, the Midrash has God bemoaning, oh no, who is going to fight the battles of Israel against me? Who is going to be my person of parousia. And that's one of my arguments, actually, in the book, is that the emergence of a celebration of rebuke, of, of challenging God, emerges exactly the same time in the 4th, 5th, and 6th century when emperors in the Roman Empire used to hire bishops to be their person of parousia. They would hire bishops, and their job would be to criticize the emperor. And it's a very dangerous and scary thing to do. I mean, it also interesting, Michel, Michel Foucault, the great uh, postmodern scholar, actually his last address at Berkeley was on this concept of parousia. And it's actually online. You can get the, the, uh, the transcript. Very courageous act, right? Because if you're hired to be a nag, you know, you may go a little bit too far. And in my mind, I think the Jews also wanted to have men of virtue, men of parousia. Of course, um, the Jews had no emperors. Why not? Well, the Jews have no political power, so at least they imagine, they imagine their great biblical heroes as you know, men and sometimes women um, of parousia. The, uh, uh, Hannah, Hannah was viewed by the rabbis as also a woman who really gives it to, uh, gives it to God. 
you've had a question? No. no. Sure, it's called Pious Irreverence. The funny thing is that the, there was a, the, someone did a documentary, a dear friend of ours, someone, dear friend, Phil Schneider, did a documentary of my father mm-hmm. and his life and his career. And, and unbeknownst to either of us, the title that he gave this documentary was Righteous Rebel because he's a righteous man who's a little bit rebellious. And the irony is that, of course, I write a book with basically the same topic. We're dealing with different things and different, but it's, it's this idea that sometimes holiness isn't always about submission. That holiness also is about, you know, being, taking courage and standing truth to power. Um, getting back to the, to, the, to the text. So one response is that, no, in the rabbinic period, the rabbis really understood God to be close with Israel. That's one of the, the real distinctive characters of rabbinic conception of God is that God is conceived as as a God who loves his people. Even after the destruction of the temple, God has not abandoned Israel. The Christians made the argument, look, the temple is destroyed. It's clear God has revoked the covenant with Israel. It no longer applies. Right? The covenant is broken. God returns to the heavens. And the rabbis were saying, no, God has not abandoned Israel. God is close with Israel. God um, actually suffers with Israel in exile. So I think this fits very well with the the rabbinic, what I would call, and this is chapter 5 of my book, which is the rabbinic humanization of God. That God really is conceived as being a a human-like character. God who has faults. And not only that, what's, what's quite remarkable is that in rabbinic literature, there's a notion that emerges that God's law doesn't just mean that God is the author of law, but God is also subject to his own law. So you'll have this verse in the Torah. God says, my, my Torati, my, my chukim, my laws, and the rabbis read that as my laws, laws that God is bound to. So you have all these texts where where this notion that God keeps Torah law is used as a tool by which biblical characters, through the lens of the rabbis, challenge God. And now I want to say one last thing, and that is that, and this is where I may get in trouble in my book, which is the last chapter, um, where I argue that the rabbis did not conceive of God as being morally perfect. That God makes moral mistakes, right? God is not only human-like in terms of having limbs and having human-like emotions, but God in the rabbinic period makes mistakes. And I have a whole chapter where I collect midrashim, where the rabbis have biblical characters criticizing God, and God says, you're right, and I'm wrong. My, one of my examples is, is from a text, which is in text number 8, that I've given out is the Tanhuma text, where the rabbis envision God commanding that Moshe kill all the men, women, and children of the nation of Sihon. The story of the, of the Israelite conquest of Sihon appears both in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. And in the text of the Torah itself, God commands Moses to destroy all of the people of Sichon. But before doing that, God says, go out and see if they're interested in 
having peace first, right? Let's try peace. Let's try to avert war at all costs. What the Tanhuma here does is argue that this notion that we should first seek peace before looking to war, the Tanhuma envisions this as a moment where God is taught peace before war. Look, take a look at this text. In the second paragraph of text number 8 from Tanhuma, you find that the Holy One um, canceled the decree of utter destruction for the sake of peace. When? God said to Moses, when you approach a town to attack it, you shall offer it terms of peace. Now concerning the whole matter, the Holy One had said that he would destroy them, the people of Sichon's kingdom. However, Moses did not do so. It's an amazing text where the rabbis have Moses defying God. God says, go to war. Moses says, sorry, Charlie. With all due respect, God, not interested. What does Moses say to God? How am I going to go to war? I don't know who's bad and I don't know who's good. Individual responsibility. God, we're not, we don't believe in collective punishment. Again, this is the rabbinic Moses speaking. Instead, I defy you, God. I'll come to them in peace. Skip the proof text. When Moses saw that Sichon did not come in peace, then they went to war. Next paragraph. The Holy One said to Moses, Now you have come to them in peace by your life, just as you have said, so will I do. And another Tanhuma text is even more radical. This text appears in Numbers Rabbah, which is considered a, a Tanhuma text, Numbers Rabbah, 1933, where the same thing, Moshe defies God, moral defiance, and you know what God says? Lima ditani, which means you've taught me something, Moshe. Ani mevatel devarai, I will nullify my word and accept your decree. Another famous example I love to use, which I didn't bring here, was in the Ten Commandments. So it says in the Ten Commandments, and I'm also always bothered by this. Uh, it says, um, God will punish children for the sins of the parents. To the third and fourth generation. You're going to talk about that tonight? Yeah. So that always bothered me. That always really bothered me. And especially, you know, I, I went to ultra-Orthodox elementary schools. And they would always say, my dad's a, an apicares. So I said, oh, that, that means I'm going to get in trouble too because of this verse. The, the Tanhuma has an amazing, and tonight I'm going to read this text. The Tanhuma has an amazing midrash that basically has Moshe standing up to God and saying, God, what in the world are you doing? This is not moral. The is it moral that, that what, you're going to punish Abraham because his father was an evil man? Right? And a whole list of other biblical characters. The rabbis have Moshe challenging God. And it's an unbelievable text where here too, God says to Moshe, Lima Ditani, you've taught me something. I want you to delete that phrase from the Ten Commandments. And from now on, the verse from Deuteronomy chapter 24 should hold the day. Children shall not be put to death for the sins of the parents, and parents shall not be put to death for the sins of the children. And I wrote a whole article on this. 
where you have all of these concessions. And I think the rabbis were quite radical, that they didn't really see God as being morally perfect. God is interested in justice. God is interested in morality. But God is also a God who is convinced and is moved. And I think these texts, and obviously there are many more texts that I don't have the time to read, and where it becomes quite clear that in late rabbinic literature, the rabbis saw challenging God as a very real human experience that should be celebrated. It means that you have a relationship with God. It means you love God. It means you're connected with God, right? I mean, atheists aren't challenging God, right? Elie Wiesel was once criticized by atheists. What are you doing putting God on trial? You know, you're wasting all your energy and time. Elie Wiesel is getting hit from both sides. Um, and uh, so I just want to, uh, I'll finish with, uh, with this beautiful text in, 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 the, in the Talmud. It says, um, chutzpah, klape, shamaya, mahane. That chutzpah towards God is effective. Chutzpah towards God is effective. But as the Gemara, as the Talmud says, it is effective when you're in a loving relationship with God, when you have a commitment to God. Just as Choni Hamagal, the great Choni who, who you know, told God, I'm not, Choni was the first protester, right? Protested God. God, I'm not moving from this circle until you bring rain. And what was the, the, the great figure of the day, Shimon ben Shetach, what does he say? He says, Choni, only you can get away with this. If you weren't Choni, I would have excommunicated you for chutzpah. But why Choni? Can you get away with this? Kishata ben bayit lifne hamakom. Because you are like a child to God. Keben shemitchate lifne avicha. Like a child who nags a parent. Of course, a child has a right to nag a parent. That's what being a child is. So to Choni, you have that right. You are a ben bayit lifne hamakom. You are considered a member of the divine household. So this idea that the challenging God should be viewed not as any way as a, as a, as a, a subversive move, but as, a, as, as, as an act of, of love, and an act of commitment. Um, and this position really, I think, uh, is the position of many of the Hasidic teachers. But we should still recognize this is still a very controversial issue within the religious community. There are many voices uh, in, after the Holocaust, ultra-Orthodox voices that would cite the early rabbinic view that one is prohibited from ever criticizing or challenging God. By the way, you don't find this level of celebration of challenging God in, in Christian or Islamic texts. Um, and I try to make certain arguments for it in my book, in my conclusion. We don't have time for that. But um, thank you. Uh, I guess I can take some, uh, take some questions. Yes, what's your name? Yes. Oh, okay. It's my sister's name. Well, I think the, the, the prohibitive uh, uh, voice, the prohibitive camp, I call my book the anti-protest, the anti-protest camp. Um, they basically are, they have a big challenge on their hands. 
because, as you said, first, what do they do with all the biblical stories? So what I've seen, typically, is that they have to add something to the biblical text that's not there, which is when they challenged God, that was a sin and that they were punished for it. So when, so when Abraham says to God, you know, in chapter 15 of Genesis, how will I know that you will be true to your word? The anti-protest camp has, has Abraham being punished, that because of that statement, right? Or when Moshe, um, when Moshe in, in, in the end of chapter 5 of Exodus says, why have you made things worse for Israel? God, you told me to confront Paro over Israelite slavery. Paro's made things worse. Why? God, what have you done? You've made things worse. So in the, in the Torah itself, God just says, oh, don't worry. You know, you'll see what I'll do. I'll take care of them. But when the rabbis rewrite that text in the Talmud, they have at that point in the narrative, God Punishing Moshe, saying, how dare you raise a voice and critique me? I'm not going to allow you into the land of Israel. So the rabbis push back Moshe's punishment, Moshe's barring from the land of Israel all the way back to chapter, to chapter 5. Um, and you find that again. You find that in Habakkuk, um, who also, if you read the, the prophet Habakkuk also, he was pretty chutzpah towards God there too. Um, he's punished. Um, and Job, as I, as, I, as I mentioned as well, um, there's this text in, in, in Pesikta Rabati, which is a late midrash, where the rabbi said that had Job not protested God, he would have achieved the heights of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's one of the texts that, I, that you have in front of you, which we didn't have time to look at. Um, but because he challenged God, he, he lost that, right? We would have said in the prayers, Elohei Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Iov. So, so I think that's what they, they, they reread the biblical text that way. The, the, the Christian community also has that same problem. I mean, how do early Christians read all of these Old Testament accounts of protest? The, the Orthodox Christian community. Um, there, they, they do a little differently. Um, in, in, in the article that I wrote for, for AJS Review, um, I, what I showed is that the early Christian community saw those biblical protests against God and said they weren't really protests. They look like protests, they smell like protests, but they're not really protests. So Job really never protested against God, right? And either Job was playing devil's advocate or Job was really lashing out at his friends and he used God as a mouthpiece. There are various ways to reread this, but they downplay. They downplay all of the critiques um, against, against God. Um, the early Christians were not willing to see biblical patriarchs sinning. I think the rabbis had a lot easier time thinking of biblical characters as, as sinning characters. Um, and that's another argument I make in, in, in the book. And you're asking me how, how, how do they relate. You're saying how do the anti-protest voices, which anti-protest voices, in rabbinic literature or in, or in like the last hundred years, how will they... That's a good question. How, how will they read some of these texts? Um, my guess is, you know, they would say something like, um, well, you think you're on the level of, of, of Moshe to argue with God? My, my, my uncle once said that to me when I 
I have a pretty pious Orthodox uncle. Um, I have pious uncles and aunts that are atheists too, but it just so happens to be a pious Orthodox man. And that was his response. That who are you to claim, you know. So then I say, well, wait a second. So now you're saying that, that, that only the, the, the real righteous people can, can criticize God? You know, like it's, it's an interesting flip, right? If they could do it, then that should serve as a role model for us, not as, a, not as an exclusive party. Can I just mention, like, I, in the East Valley, as well, Rabbi Bayo is the East Valley Jewish Community Center, so he's teaching this course on Jewish philosophy, and he's a Maimonidean, so it's very, because, you know, we were just there this morning, and then I went to Ina Levine, I'm sure, like crazy, but the, he, he, you know, he, he has a very Maimonidean view uh, of everything, so it's sort of fascinating to see the... This is a different religious discourse, a different religious universe. Um, Maimonides has a hard problem because, my, I mean, this God is a very human-like God, right? That's what Selimel, the image of God for the rabbis doesn't mean, you know, that we have intellect, that we're moral. Image of God for the rabbis means image of God. It means that God looks like a human being, wow. right? And that Maimonides radically reinterpreted. There's a book, by the way, excellent book. Um, I've just reviewed it for the Journal of Religion. It's called um, The Image of God by Yair Loberbaum. It was originally uh, a, a book in Hebrew. It was translated, I think, by Cambridge. And he basically shows that the, 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 the idea of the image of God means intellect or morality or virtue is really not rabbinic. Um, and, that, and that the rabbis really understood Selim Elohim as the human shape or form. Wow. And that we are, this is Yair's point that I disagreed with, but Yair's reading of rabbinic texts is that the rabbis saw human beings as being extensions of God. I mean, it's a very radical book um, that, that the human being somehow is deified um, in, in, in that perspective. Right? And therefore, if, like the rabbinic text, right? So that if you've, you've, if you've killed somebody, you've diminished the divine, right? If you refrain from having children, somehow you have hurt the divine. It's somehow, you know, the human being is, is somehow divine. So I, I, you can read my review in the Journal of Religion. I don't know if I would go that far. Um, but, but, but certainly, I mean, it's a, different, it's a different religious discourse. And Maimonides really, obviously, he has to say, look, you can't read the Bible, the biblical descriptions of God, literally. Because if you do, that's heresy for Maimonides. So I was just mentioning to Shmuley that it becomes a very interesting thing for Maimonides that reading the Torah becomes a very dangerous act. If you don't have the proper interpretive lens, which, of course, is philosophy and Aristotle, you're going to end up in, in heresy. And that's what the Guide to the Perplexed is. Guide to the Perplexed fundamentally is, is not a book of philosophy. It really is a, is a guide to how to read the Torah. That's why he starts off the book with, with the, how to read, how to read the Torah. And how, yeah. who, who wrote anthropomorphism and Judaism? That's Arthur Mar- Marmorstein. How do you spell his last name? M-A-R-M-O-R Stein. We all know how to spell Stein. I mean, this book goes back. I mean, this book goes back to 1937. And what's amazing is that Marmerstein's book on the rabbinic conception of God is, is, is still, even though it's somewhat dated, it, it, it's still relevant. You know, no one has really written, no scholar has really written a, a book on the rabbinic conception of God. I mean, I wrote a little bit on, on protest against God in the rabbinic period. I mean, I have a chapter on rabbinic humanization. But, um, but Fishbane's books are also good. 
Michael Fishbane, his book, Biblical Myth and Rabbinic Mythmaking. But when you read his books, you have to really be patient and, and because it's just a work of beauty and a work of art. And you may also want a dictionary with you as well. <laughs> so, yes. So I think several hundreds of years ago, when people were studying Kabbalah more uh, openly, the rabbis would say to a student, if somebody says something nice about you, how does that make you feel? And if somebody criticizes you, how does that make you feel? And if the student, what they're trying to see is what level of equanimity the student has in order to assess their maturity to be able to move into this level of study. You know, and if the person says, oh, you know, somebody says something nice to me, it makes me feel good. It, it makes me feel bad, but don't worry, I don't take it out on them or anything like that. You're not ready yet. Mm. You know, you gotta, you gotta be able to just deal with it. Yeah. So we're talking about so far the person who's doing the talking, mm. doing the criticizing. Yeah. What about the receiver? What about the receiver as a <laughs> yeah. part of this? Because when um, you know when 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 Heschel talks about prayer, right, getting into prayer with God, that doesn't change God. That changes you, right? And so, what, you know, what, I would what, say what I would that? say for Heschel, if I could talk for Heschel, is that yeah. he would certainly say that God is moved as well. Well, okay. Yeah. Okay, but I mean, this is based this is based on the Kabbalistic idea that 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 the, the, the divine realm is is needs needs humanity. That, you know, that God needs needs us in order for God to be harmonized and balanced. Right? That that by our performance of mitzvot, somehow we create unity in the divine realm, um, that we really can transform the divine. But the difference is, is that, and so what I would argue, that in Kabbalah, it works mechanically, right? So if we do mitzvot, somehow, there's like just like a system, like a machine that somehow, automatically, by definition, right, the divine realm will be complete in harmony. And if God is, the divine realm is harmonious, then the world will be harmonious. I think in the rabbinic period, we're not working with God as, as in, in the spherotic system. We're working with God as a personality. And therefore, it's much less predictable and automatic. It's not mechanical. I think it operates you know, more interpersonally, like we would relate to each other as persons. And therefore, prayer affects God like it would, it would affect another human being. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. Uh, except, but you're, you're struggling except, with... Except you're working with the assumption... A different premise. That, that, of the premise that that's how... It, but right. if you don't take that premise, if you say, "What's the difference? How? What's the difference? What you say?" Right. So if you take the if you take the if you take a somewhat of a moderate position that that yes, you know, God is a character, but God is perfect and can't can't be can't can change God's mind. So then, protest would be, I think, a futile activity. You know, whether whether it would be prohibitive, that I don't know. Maybe if you're worried about the respect side of things, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously presenting the extremes in the rabbinic tradition, but, but that's why we don't have this whole motif of challenging God in the medieval period. I mean, it's really, really not there. Uh, if anything, in the Kabbalistic system, if we have moments of protest, the protest is not between a human being and God, but, but protest between who and who in the Kabbalistic system? Between the Sfirot. So sometimes you'll have, like, you know, the Shechina will get mad at uh, Tiferet. The, the religious drama moves, 
In the rabbinic period, the religious drama is between God and Israel. In the Kabbalistic system, it, the religious drama is now moved. In, it, it's in, in the intra-divine realm, there's drama. I don't think Maimonides has any drama. <laughs> when did the rabbinic period end? I, you know... I mean, it's not like, you know, someone woke up one morning and said, oh, look at that. The rabbinic period ended. Um, it, I, I typically like to say the Islamic, the Islamic conquest. So I would say the 7th century is the end of the rabbinic period. Some want to push it, you know, further, further up. But I would say the beginning of the Islamic, the emergence of Islam. Because then typically the, the great rabbis in Babylonia are then called the Gaonim. I mean, they still have the, the, the name rabbi. <laughs> um, I didn't know this until I went to graduate school. Apparently, this is, the, this is how the academic world divides up the, the, the scheme, schematization of, of Jewish intellectual history. I mean, when I was in rabbinical school, I don't, know, I don't know what you would mean by the rabbinic period. I mean, there are rabbis still running around now, so, so we, should, we should still be in the rabbinic period. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, some people want to see, see, see ourselves living in, in post-modernity, and there are pe people pushing back against that, you know? Sam Harris's of the world are pushing back, and no, there is truth, there is objectivity, you know? Um, but in a religious sense, you're asking me? You know, the, 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 the division usually goes, you know, the rabbis, then it goes in the, in the religious world, then it goes to the Gaonim, and then you have in the, let's say from 1000 to 1500, you have the Rishonim, and then you have from like, let's say 1500, you know, till, till now, you have what's called the Achronim. So, so my Rebbe would always call the, the current period the Tachtonim. The Tachton, which means... Exactly, exactly. That we don't even have the ability to argue against uh, uh, anyone from, from, you know, from 1500 to 2000. So we're like in a, but I don't know, you're asking me in, a, in, a, in the academy, in the university, it's still rabbinic, medieval, modern. There is no period after the modern period. We're still living, I guess, still in the modern period. There's no course in, unless maybe post-modernity in Judaism, but post-modernity is not so much a time, it's more, of a, it's more of a method. I think modern Judaism, you could say the same thing. I mean, I think there are Jews living today that are living in the medieval period, right? That are, that, right? The rabbinical school I went to, I, still, I don't think is living with the questions of modernity. So Paul Mendes Flor, my teacher, would always say that modernity is not always a time, but it's a, it's a method. It's a way of approaching the world. So, any other questions? I was just going to ask you, this is something really about community, today's community. You know, during religious schools and prayer and things like that, uh, kids have grown up and, 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 and there's a challenge on reading this challenge about God and, and, and believing in God. And, and, and through that time, People have been turned off about, you know, religious uh, community life and things like that. Normally, in a in a community like I don't know nor, if it's norm, but the western part of the community, eighty-five percent of the Jewish community don't belong, don't participate. Take care. Take care. Regards and, to Bill Burke. You ever talk to him? And if they don't participate, are they not participating because of this lack of challenge in the synagogues and, and or protesting? 
Well, I, 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 no, I want to take your point. I want to take your point, and, and I think it's a great point. You know, I, I have a, for me, I'm not comfortable with the rabbinic conception of God. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to worship a character that's, that's not morally perfect. You know, I don't want to worship. I mean, that's just not, that's not for me personally. So, so and I have more of a Maimonidean conception of God, which is more of a concept than a character. Um, so when I think, but, but yet I'm still um, inspired by, by these rabbinic texts, not in the sense of challenge against God, but for me, I think about a religious moral challenge against the rabbinic establishment. You know, the courage to speak morality, to, to challenge Jewish law, to, to challenge the establishment, the hierarchy. The, for me, that's what drives the kind of the same. Uh, and I think for, for kids as well, you know, kids in synagogues, they have to be encouraged to challenge, to criticize, and to but say, you know what? 5% are not. What are we doing in communities today? Uh, to... Why do you think it's important to have, to have Jews? This is a, I always ask, well, okay, let people, you know, people don't want to be Jews or don't want to engage in or Judaism. Don't. Yeah, what, why is that, why should that be a concern? Tradition of being Jewish and, yeah. and the Jewish faith and, and having your grandchildren marry Jewish, you know, yeah. Jewish children. I guess you're right. Look, I have a deep love of Judaism, I mean, but I don't, you know, I'm a big talker now. We'll see what happens when my kid grows up. But like, I don't want to impose, you know, I don't want to impose my, on my kid, you know. After studying with me for 20 years, he'll have a right to, to decide what he wants to study. But, you know, after 20 years. Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't know. You're, you're asking a great question. I'm not in the trenches. I'm in the ivory towers of the academy. You have to ask, you know, people who are on the ground. Ask your son. You have to ask your son. Ian will get. Ian will know more than I. I will on this question. Well, actually, I, I, I think the topic today is very much in line with that because I think that we taught our kids. We often taught our kids to submit to tradition rather than be in dialogue. Yeah. And yeah. Dialogue yeah. And in it just takes Shabbat. Whatever Shabbat practice you have, do this on Shabbat, as opposed to viewing Shabbat as a protest against societal conformity, right? Or I think you can take a lot of rituals and concepts like that. They're actually pushing back against something. And to be in dialogue with it. So I think there's actually there's a broader framework that comes out of this session around how to think about religion as a whole, as a dialogue, as a tension, rather than just a submission. Yeah. So if you enjoyed yeah. this as I did, I hope you enjoyed this so well at 7 o'clock. You can grab them after. We're going to conclude collectively. You can grab them after. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybatemadrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.